is Fuse and Focus, Fuse FM's flagship news show. Hi guys, and thank you for tuning in for Fuse and Focus. Uh, this week, I'm joined by Serafina. Hello. And Luke. Hello. So we've got three stories for you this week. And uh, the first one we're going to start with is Northern Irish sectarianism, uh, the Brexit episode. This week, Northern Irish political leaders have met to discuss disorders in the region. After many nights of unrest, where rioting in the city of Belfast was labelled as the worst scene in Northern, Northern Ireland in years, Stormont has united the call for the end and condemnation of the violence seen on Northern Irish streets. Yet the united political plea pales in comparison to the deeply divided Northern Ireland, where current conflicts driven by unionists are reminiscent of the sectarian strife witnessed in the region during the time of the Troubles. Over recent days, Belfast has witnessed violence on a scale not seen in the area for years. Pilot police have explained. Videos from the region have shown a bus hijacked by gangs of unionist youths, which was left to freewheel along a road before it was set on fire by petrol bombs. Further instances of violence have seen reports of police officers and journalists being harassed along with certain vehicles and the gates of Belfast peace walls, which separate nationalists from loyalist communities, were vandalized and set ablaze through petrol bombs and fireworks. The carnage of riots, violent protests and fire attacks on Northern Irish streets hark back to the harrowing times of the troubles in Northern Ireland, where in this latest instance of long sectarian strife, gangs of unionist youth have taken to violence. The imminent causes for this recent addition to the annals of Northern Irish sectarian struggle reaches back to two recent events. The fragile piece of the Good Friday Agreement, which is being tampered with by the ongoing Brexit process, along with the breaking of COVID rules at a Sinn Féin organized funeral last year, commemorating a senior Republican figure and former IRA member, Bobby Story. These events appear to be the two leading factors driving loyalist anger at present. Unionists in the province accused the Irish Republican Sinn Féin party of showing arrogance, self-entitlement and privilege over its actions in relation to the funeral of Bobby Story, where the funeral organized last June presented a dramatic farewell consisting of 2000 mourners at a time when COVID restrictions were in place, permitting only 30 people at such an event. This event was met with huge backlash by many unionist parties where loyalists saw this as a slap in the face. Aggravations came to a boiling point in the March when after Sinn Féin flexed its political muscle, prosecutors in Northern Ireland decided they would not prosecute anyone at the funeral. This proved the trigger moment for Protestant loyalists who saw this as an unfair favouring of the Catholic Republicans in Northern Ireland. Heaped onto this bubbling cauldron of sectarian resentment is the Brexit process, when recently the issue of the Irish Sea customs border has proved to be a contentious problem between unionists and Republicans. In finalising Brexit negotiations, the EU pushed the unfortunate issue of an economic border running across the Irish Sea upon the negotiations. The construction of a customs border on the Irish Sea between Northern Ireland and Great Britain has placed Northern Ireland within the EU customs union and therefore EU economic jurisdiction. This separation from Great Britain has angered unionists who see the Irish Sea border as undermining the unity of the union and the UK's constitutional and economic integrity. Whilst the DUP supported Brexit, unionists staunchly opposed the border port protocol and voted against it in the House of Commons. Some unionists, according to the Independent, believe that, quite, that, that, quote, the Brexit deal has cut Northern Ireland adrift from the rest of the UK, pushing Belfast further away from London, paving the way for an economic united Ireland. 
Yet the idea of a hard border on the island of Ireland has been met with staunch nationalist Republican opposition, whereupon the peace provided by the Good Friday Agreement, nationalists in Northern Ireland accepted the province as part of the UK, whilst in return being granted shared power with unionists and a soft border with the Republic, symbolising seamless access between the two islands and a mark for the, how their campaign to free Ireland from Britain was incomplete. Once the British government decided to Brexit, they were cautious about creating a hard border, fully aware of such sectarian contexts. But the EU objected, fearing that there would be nothing to stop the UK flouting EU regulatory standards. It was pushed upon Britain to form an internal border within the Union at the Irish Sea. This decision has appeased nationalists, yet unionists are angered by feeling distance from the UK, where now, as a result of EU regulations impeding British imports, people in Northern Ireland are facing empty shelves, ban on British goods, and increased red tape on British commodities. The break of the United Kingdom and the European Union is threatening to interrupt a 20-year peace process in Northern Ireland, and it is clear that neither the EU nor the UK have taken a clear enough consideration for the delicate peace in Northern Ireland maintained by the Good Friday Agreement. So, leading from this report, I have two questions to put to you guys. Firstly, uh, we've covered the use of force and violent protest extensively throughout the show. Um, so this is another addition on a frequent topic that we cover. What commonalities or differences potentially to violent protest do you see in this case of Northern Irish gangs of unionist youths, youth groups? I think it's just, um, I don't want to say mad, but like mad is the best word I can think of right now, that this conflict that's been going on for so long has become sort of a generational and you've got the next like young, and there's a couple of 12 year olds that have been um arrested for doing this sort of stuff which is really quite worrying because obviously the good friday agreement was very fragile you know it's not something that everyone's been massively happy with in years and um, so like, personally i'm quite worried about um the fact that this is all sparking up again um i think northern ireland has been increasingly isolated from the rest of the the UK at the moment, you know, it's got massively different COVID rules and regulations that have been brought in. Um, and I can fully understand why people are sort of feeling uh, more separate. Um, and I just don't think it really bodes well for a good future, considering the, that there's just not been much progress made on this whole EU border um, issue. And the fact we've now got violence is definitely not something to be taken lightly. Yeah, I think that... Um... Yeah, I think the whole stability of, of Northern Ireland is, well, it's never been a stable country for the last 100 years or so. Um, I mean, I think there has been there has been improvements, I think, since 1998 when the Good Friday Agreement was signed. I mean, one of the main examples is, I know the police is a very controversial subject, but um, the police force that operated in Northern Ireland during the 20th century was much, much further authoritarian than what we're seeing at the moment. Uh, they were the Royal Ulster Constabulary, which was the name of the police, were basically an arm of the British government at the time. Um, whereas now there is the police service in Northern Ireland, which is completely independent of of government and of politics. So that's been one improvement. And I dread to think what happened, what would have happened, if this was to occur during the not the, during the twentieth century. It would have been on such a big, a much more bigger scale. Saying that, that's not to take away from the fact that this is an extremely controversial set of values that go on in Northern Ireland. I'd, I'd say one thing really is that I think for the last five, six years, uh, when Brexit has been the main talking point of British politics, um, 
when when Theresa May became prime minister and she called that election that she lost and she had to rely on DUP support, that was, in my my opinion, the starting point of this problems because what we saw then was the British government basically being hand in hand with unionist parties in Northern Ireland. They were basically in it together. And then when Boris Johnson won his majority two years ago, that key that the DUP held to sway over Northern Irish politics was taken away from them. They no longer had the keys to the heart of the prime minister, so to speak. So what we're seeing now is a reaction to that. And now, as Boris Johnson has embarked on a much harder Brexit in the eyes of many, I think what we're also seeing is, is as a result of that, a lot, a lot more careless approaches to Northern Ireland. And as a result, DUP and the unionists getting extremely annoyed and agitated about these things because they're no longer in power to say anything about it. So I think this all stems from, in my opinion, um, Conservative Party mismanagement. Uh, but I would also say that this is an issue that's been going on for a long, long time. And uh, we can't take away the history from this because it is a major factor. Yeah, and um, just going off your point about the tie between the Conservatives and the Unionists in uh, Northern Ireland, the Conservative Party, I guess, still their official name is the Conservative and Unionist Party. So the, the, the stability of the Union, its endurance are a key goal of the party. And um, I think a big point to take from this is if Boris Johnson becomes the prime minister to, to lose the union, whether that's Scotland, whether that's Northern Ireland, um, that will greatly hinder and probably end his premiership as, as prime minister. But just going back to Serafina's point before I move more into the Brexit uh, debate, which was the second part of the question on this report, um, Serafina raised that um, in some of the reports you saw videos and it was... Um, children as, as young, because they weren't like, that is a child's age, 12, 12 years old. They're not even teenagers yet, but um, young individuals, very young individuals uh, who are kind of embraced in this unionist loyalist rhetoric and are ready to act violently for an ideology that they may not necessarily understand fully yet, but are obviously being funneled by elders. Because um, I don't know if it was the same video that uh, Serafina saw, but one that I watched on Twitter was um, you had um, basically like, groups of five six predominantly young boys dressed in very similar outfits um so that their faces weren't on show as well balaclavas or just like very limited kind of facial vision and they were being cheered on by um adults on either side of the streets um kind of they were brandishing some of them were brandishing petrol bombs a lot of them rocks standing near the um the peace gates the so-called peace gates in belfast and um then there were copycat attacks retaliations from nationalist republicans on the other side so this isn't just we don't want to kind of inflame it and say this is just unionists who are committing the, um, the crime but there were retaliations from predominantly youths as well on the republican side and um, I really think that an important point to take from this and what I kind of thought in comparison to other violent protests we looked at is the age of these people. Because how can individuals so young be like to an extent so radicalized to act in the way that we're seeing in Northern Ireland? And um, I do agree, Luke, with your point that this is mismanagement from the top down in the sense that we've seen related to Brexit, but not only, um, the Conservative Party has kind of lost control of what's going on in, in the union, within all member states of the union. And um, I really think that this is just another episode of chaos that has shadowed uh, Boris Johnson's premiership. 
But um, leading to the second question that I'd like us to explore is this debate of Brexit borderlands, um, which has been a contentious issue uh, in this process uh, regarding uh, whether the border will be on the Irish Sea, um, like the Unionists despise, or whether a hard border would be made in uh, on the island of Ireland itself, separating the Republic from the North, which obviously the Republic and Republicans in Northern Ireland despised. So it's kind of a lose-lose situation. And regarding the complexity of this and the fact that it does appear like a lose-lose situation for our government, how do you think the EU and the UK could act together to ease sectarian strife in Northern Ireland? I think um, the, the first part of that with what would be, I think it was what was more likely a, a hard border um, between Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland or, or not. Um, I'd say, I mean, there has been, I think, a lot of surveys which have showed that more people now are in support of a united Ireland in Northern Ireland, um, just purely because of this Brexit chaos that's occurring. And um, the last thing I think anyone wants, whether you're a unionist, unionist or a Republican, is that hard border, purely because it brings with it terrorism um, and so much more. Um, so I think that's one of the things that I think is more likely. I think one of the things that the EU and UK can do to work together, and I think this is where, um, and as we've we mentioned about, about Boris Johnson and the Conservative Party's management, and this is something that actually, um, I think, worked really well. And actually one of Tony Blair's defining moments as Prime Minister, a lot, a lot of people would argue is his greatest moment as Prime Minister, which was the Northern Ireland peace agreement, because he was able to work with EU leaders, the President of the United States, Bill Clinton at the time, and remember, Tony Blair came from an Irish family. He was very, in his heart, probably very uh, sympathetic to the Republican cause, yet he was able to work as a mediator between Unionists and Republicans. And I think the way in which Boris Johnson should do that is very much take, in some respects, the Blair approach of stepping out of his Unionist ties and becoming a mediator between the two. And, and the, the EU would be more than willing to facilitate that, and so would um, and, and also we've got a, a president of the United States now who's got connections with the Irish state and been more like more willing to sort out there any issues of peace and, and, and problems that the Irish are going through. So I think what we can try and get from this is, is working as a mediator. I think that's what Boris Johnson should do as opposed to taking the side as he does of the unionists. Yeah, I definitely agree. I think you have to put the party politics aside a lot with this because it's you know, as you were saying, Peter, the, the fact that there's people so young getting involved, that just kind of suggests that there's been like an undercurrent of people not happy with this for a while and it's been passed down from generation to generation. Um, and that no matter what sort of political agreement you've got on the top of this dissent within the population, that's going to come out. And if you've got a big event like this, you know, a possible hard border, that could cause massive problems. So I don't know what can be done. I really not my area of expertise, but I know that something has to be done that is a lot more about the the actual communities that are involved rather than like what's best for Boris Johnson as he tends to do in his uh, leadership um so yeah because otherwise it could just turn into the troubles all over again and nobody wants that thank you just um just a final point going off what Luke said regarding kind of bringing people together to the negotiation table and encouraging co cooperation I do think in this situation, the UK government is stuck between a rock and a hard place in the sense that 
what we've seen so far from the EU doesn't seem to be a recognition of the difficulty of the process in Northern Ireland, in the sense that EU leaders are very adamant about some form of hard border control existing, whether that's on the island itself or on the Irish Sea, in the sense that the, argue is about, the argument is basically about uh, EU regulatory standards, and these want to be maintained uh, by the European Union. And although we haven't had any indication that Britain is looking to um, negate any of these regulatory standards, the argument is that if there isn't a hard border, these um, commodities that are deemed not to the standard of EU liking can go into Ireland and open, be opened up to the, to the EU market. So the question here, and it's kind of just tying together what Serafina said, um, should we put politics and politicking aside in this sense and kind of acknowledge the severity of the issue that exists in Northern Ireland because it is still a deeply divided sectarian struggle that exists there and kind of recognize that the, ultimately these are people's potential because luckily we haven't had any lives lost in these demonstrations the past week or so but it is people's lives at risk in the sense of what we know Northern Ireland can be because it is a tinderbox at times so I also like I put this question in the sense that not only the UK government but the EU as well should we sometimes put political and economic interests aside to recognize the complexity of human life in certain areas yeah 100 percent I think um I think these these issues as you said they they they're debated on a political and economic level and rarely are are mentioned in regard to civilian life and to civilians living standards um i on on the on the point of that i'd say that actually what we're seeing and to to actually support that argument is um i think the people of northern ireland now are less um less inclined to vote with Sinn Féin or dup i think what we're actually seeing now and what we saw in the 2019 election is both of those parties lost seats the alliance party which is the liberal democrats of northern ireland actually gained a couple seats and they are traditionally uh, the mediators in Northern Ireland. They, they don't take a side when it comes to um, Northern Irish politics. Uh, so I think a lot of people in Northern Ireland now are, are trying to work past those, uh, those big party alliances and are trying to find common ground. And I think if the, if the governments, if the EU can, can put this back into this, this idea of civilian life protection and, and things like that, I think the, the people of Northern Ireland will respond much, much better and being forced into a certain side which they're doing at the moment. Yeah, so I just wanted to talk a bit about Keir Starmer this week. Um, so we might have seen in the news recently, um, there's been quite a lot of stuff about Keir Starmer basically just not really doing much, not really taking a stance on things. Um, and I don't know about you guys, but all I tend to see about Keir is just opinion pieces about what he's doing and what he's not doing um which don't really they just tend to sort of say you know he doesn't take a stance on anything he doesn't do anything particularly uh, newsworthy we don't really know what he stands for um so recently there's been a times interview um in which he said that he isn't like Boris Johnson um but the interview was in the times so it's obviously behind a paywall so we don't really get to see what he actually was saying about himself we still don't know what he is he keeps just defining himself against what he isn't um, which is obviously difficult to help his cause at this point. We've um, mentioned on this show quite a lot, Marcus Rashford being the de facto lead opposition because Keir doesn't do much. Um, sorry, I shouldn't call him Keir. 
first armour. Um, and he hasn't been massively efficient as a force of opposition in the government. Um, he hasn't made any of his policies particularly clear and he seems to actually side with the government quite a lot. So, for example, in September, his um, quote-unquote opposition was to try and get kids back to school in September, which is what the government's policy was at the same time. So it was literally just following what exactly the, the government wanted. Um, so, yeah, as I said, a lot of the pieces that we see online about him are just opinion pieces saying that he doesn't do much. There isn't enough like actual news or stuff to say about him. Um available to most people who don't you know really closely pay attention to Labour's politics um, and last year I believe it was November time there was a article in Galdem magazine um, by their political editor who's Moya Lothian McLean and she turned it the, the headline was Keir Starmer is a wet wipe and that has become quite a common phrase that I've seen around used I've said it myself um, because it just seems to sum up his whole um, persona at the moment and um, a recent blunder he's made was he visited a church on Good Friday that exercises gay people to try and cure them. That was a quote unquote, cure them. Um, which is the same mistake that Boris made in 2009. He did exactly the same thing, visiting this church for the press and then finding out actually it was virulently anti-LGBT rights. Um, so it kind of shows that not only is he he is in fact like Boris Johnson as he's trying to say, not to say um, but his team haven't massively done enough research and he's not you know um, going out of his way to make sure he's being friendly towards those communities so he's also down in the opinion polls he's two points below Boris Johnson um, even though Boris Johnson's been under a lot of fire recently for obviously not doing a great job with the pandemic and they've lost a lot of Labour members under him as well who may have signed up under Corbyn in 2017 uh, and there's also a bit of a crisis going on in the Labour Party with the Hartlepool by-election. So it's been solidly Labour since about 1992, I believe. Um, they're really worried they're going to lose the seat um, just because uh, the MP, I think, has been done for sexual assault claims. So it's not a great look for the party. Um, and then also he has recently made his MPs follow a whip that's uh, that have been quite controversial. So it was the Overseas Operations Bill, um, which would mean that after five years, members of the armed forces would not be able to be um, would be prosecuted for um, basically war crimes. Um, so people, critics of this bill were saying that it would breach Geneva Conventions and essentially legitimise torture. Um, and he made all the MPs follow the whip of voting for this bill and then sacked some left-wing MPs that didn't, including... Um, some that were kind of organised under Jeremy Corbyn. So not only is he not really making his stance on stuff clear, he's kind of going against a lot of what the Labour Party traditionally would stand for, which is opposing the government and opposing the more sort of right-wing, um, less humane sort of um, policies. So really not sure like what his, his motive is there. Um, and also the Times has described him as a big upgrade from Corbyn, which doesn't reflect well on him as because if a right-wing conservative government supporting paper is saying that they they like Starmer that doesn't suggest that he's doing a great job as the left-wing opposition so essentially he's not standing up for LGBT plus communities he's not opposing um, what could be argued as torture he's defining himself as not Boris Johnson but then doing everything that Boris Johnson is doing and not setting himself up as like positive things you know he's not defining himself as um 
something very obviously against Boris. Um, he's alienating the youth vote. He doesn't have clear values or motives. And so he very much seems to be this wet wipe. So my question is, do you agree with, is everything that I'm saying sort of, um, is it objective or is it subjective? Um, and what do you think he needs to do to sort of sort out his image? I think it's a blend of subjective and objective in the sense that your point resonates with a lot of people and we've seen a lot of similar ideas on in the media and also people's opinions, whether that's on Twitter or other platforms. Um, I think what Starmer appears to be, if we're going, so you say wet wipe is kind of like the, the, the running word for him. And I think a comparison that you could say is he is the perfect Peter to the horrid Henry that is Boris Johnson, in the sense that he treads very lightly he tries to appear um, very nice uh, to everyone and opinionated in the correct way. Um, the, the, the thing is, I think it's a difficult one because it's this question of how do you be, how, how are you leader of the opposition in a pandemic? And that is a difficult position that he takes because you can't overly criticise the way the nation is handling um, what's going on in the pandemic in the sense of uh, especially fighting COVID. Uh, in the sense that you have to keep morale high because it is a time of national crisis and kind of treading the water and finding the right balance in being the leader of the opposition during a pandemic is an incredibly difficult job. Um, personally, I think Keir Starmer got off to a really good start when he won the leadership election in the sense of if we're looking at it from the perspective of a party leader who uh, very effectively healed the Labour Party, removed sections of the far left which needed to go along with Corbyn in the sense of rebuilding a Labour Party that was electable. Uh, within within the United Kingdom, uh, rebuilding bridges with the Jewish community. He did that very well at the start as well, which obviously Jeremy Corbyn absolutely burnt down. Um, so I think he had a very impressive start and then completely ran out of the steam, ran out of steam in the last few months. If we're going off very recent history, I'd say um, today, Prime Minister's Questions Times, I don't know if you guys watched any of it, but I think he did really well. Uh, and I think that he, he, he came up with some good sound bites, which is something Boris does very well. And I think replicating that is something he needs to do to win over Middle England. And he ran with this, um, the sleazy Tories line, and he kept repeating it. And other Labour MPs were tweeting about it and uh, mentioning it. And I think uh, he has moments where he holds the government accountable, especially, so, like, so I completely agree with why you'd be skeptical of him. Um, as anyone, as anyone rightfully would feel, and in terms of what you said, Serafina, and I think he does have good moments where he holds Boris Johnson uh, account. So, like we've seen today with the Green Sill corruption scandal, I think he did very well in bringing that to light and in kind of making it recognisable to the public with like the sound by of the sleazy Tory Party. So, I think it is it is a it is a fifty fifty issue that. Yes, he has run out of steam at times and he hasn't seemed effective. He has made blunders with what you said about um, this um, this Christian church, which um, obviously would poll badly with the awfully of the younger audience and the progressives within the Labour Party. Was it an honest mistake? Probably was. I don't think that he endorses the, the, the sinister things that this church is conducting. I don't think that he is uh, endorsing it. I think that was that was a really costly political blunder for his uh, younger and more progressive elements of the Labour Party. But yeah, I, I like 
kind of not to sit on the fence of this issue, I do think that there are pros to Keir Starmer's approach. And also given the fact, like I started with saying, that being the leader of the opposition during a time of national crisis is incredibly difficult. But I wonder what do you think about it, Luke, as well? Um, I'd say it's a, a mixture of what, what you said, Peter, and, and also what, what Serafina was saying, I think. Um, okay, I'd like to start probably with with the uh, with how he's handling the pandemic, because again, as, as Peter rightfully said, it's it's a it's a period of history which we've never gone through before. Uh, we it's unprecedented in British politics. Um, however, I think, and I think he has handled it fairly well, in my opinion. Um, I think what we've seen from Keir Starmer over the last year is the attempt of trying to move Labour to the centre ground. I think that's undisputed. Um, and that brings with it some problems as well, actually, because I think the centre ground has changed quite a lot in the last five, six years since Brexit. I think Brexit was actually wasn't just the start of it. I think that was also going going through. Um, and that kind of feeds in, I think, to when people criticise Starmer for not really knowing what he stands for, um, because the centre ground at the moment, where we've got such high levels of opinion and debate, Occupying the centre ground is not, I think, the most desirable thing that a leader of the opposition could do. Um, but at the same time, I think when when you talked about Hartlepool and obviously Labour going into a big defeat there in Hartlepool, I can imagine. Um, I think that if we're being honest with ourselves, I think if 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 the, the same leadership was in charge um, before, we would have been, or Labour would have been in an even worse position, in my opinion. I think actually he's would have done better than, than the, the, the previous leadership would have done on, on Hartlepool and on, on other issues, if we're being honest. Um, the loss of Labour Party members, this is quite a controversial point of view, if I'm being completely honest, but I think that's not really that important because I think a lot of um, what Jeremy Corbyn talked about when he became leader was this surge in membership. And it was extremely impressive. Reaching half a million members of a political party in a Western country is extremely impressive. Um, but they only, in my opinion, they only really represented a certain section of society, a certain section of the electorate. Um, and though that certain section of electorate was one of the main reasons why Jeremy Corbyn did so well in the 2017 election. What we saw in 2019 was those same people maybe not being as interested in politics at that time, maybe because of Boris Johnson also do with Brexit as well. People have been apathetic due to those things. Um, so the members, the loss of the Labour Party members, I don't think is a, is a huge is a huge point. If I'm being honest, polls as well. I think uh, at the moment it's very hard to tell how how popular Keir Summer is amongst the polls because we're in the middle of a national pandemic and therefore party allegiances aren't as obvious as they could be. Um, and the last point I'd probably make is is actually a criticism of of both Keir Starmer and also Jeremy Corbyn. I think what we saw. Over the last six years since since Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, is this shift towards this London metropolitan elite that now dominate the Labour Party at the very centre of it, um, and that brings with it uh, Keir Starmer's people as well as Jeremy Corbyn's people. Um, I think the the one one person in the recent leadership election that was offering an alternative to that was Lisa Nandy. Uh, she was frequently talking about regeneration of northern areas, northern industrial towns. But the same at the same time, maintaining that economic sensibility that um, that Keir Starmer is also able to to do as well, um, and I think that is what the biggest problem of the Labour Party at the moment. I don't think it's necessarily a matter of left and right. I think it's 
priorities and where we target certain people or in this country. And I think um, one of the reasons why Hartlepool's not going to do very well is I think there's been a continuation of this London-centric uh, version of the Labour Party. We need to, I think, as a, as a, as a left-wing movement, I think uh, Labour needs to shift away from the cities and the metropolitan areas and, and start engaging more with, with towns in northern industrial areas. You've both touched on the idea of opposition during a pandemic there. Um, so I'm just wondering if you think that during a pandemic it's sort of more apt to put party politics aside and not focus on Keir Starmer as an opposition, but just a general, you know, not expecting him to do as much sort of fighting against the government just to ease things through, which are going to help the pandemic. Or do you think it's important to keep that sort of party line and that oppositional view going throughout this time? I think there's an important balance to be struck, and this is why I'm not overly critical of um, Keir Starmer just yet as Labour leader, because I'd like to see how he does once we're out of the pandemic, and that will be the critical point then. But um, to answer your question, I think during a time of uh, national crisis, um, I was reading I was reading uh, a report about this, actually, which was criticising Keir Starmer for a lot of the things that you said, Serafina. And um, they said in the report that this is the second most incompetent shadow cabinet since the Second World War. So the commonality here is this time of national crisis and the performance of a shadow cabinet. I, I think that um, in a time of national crisis, um, both the cabinet and the shadow cabinet must rally behind the nation, national healing and national unity. That's why I think that the approach that they've taken regarding the COVID crisis hasn't been awful. I think something that needs to be raised once we're out of the crisis is all the things that we've seen and that has been mentioned by the Labour Party, such as the um, contracts handed out by Matt Hancock, the corruption we've seen there, the corruption we've seen with the Greensill um, scandal with um, Cameron's involvement for a private company, and the PPE corruption contracts, offshoring during uh, time of COVID with um, test and trace companies and stuff like that. I think all these issues that have happened during COVID need to be shed brought to light but also need to be reminded to the people once we're out of the crisis and I think that's really kind of a time when we can form an opinion on this so I think it's still early days to say as we're coming out we need to see what the reaction is and what the momentum is behind Keir Starmer and his shadow cabinet once we get out the, once we get out of the COVID crisis. Yeah I, I agree with Peter on that um, I think I think it does require a mixture though I think um, when it comes to uh, common sense on on government policy, um, such as lockdowns that have been in needed in desperate times, um, test and trace facilities, uh, of course we should help. We Labour should hold to account uh, the actions of the government. Um, but at the same time, I don't think there should be a huge, massive, um, you know, rebellion against government policy on that front. There was one interesting thing that I think. I think Labour got massively wrong um, about COVID, uh, about COVID things, and it was to do with uh, when Rishi Sunak introduced the budget, um, and part of that budget was increasing corporation tax. Now, Labour opposing increasing in corporation tax is very, very strange, especially in the current climate, um, with with massive industries and big corporations making huge amounts of money off off this pandemic. Um, and I don't think it was the right move for Keir Starmer to uh, to not to, to basically oppose that move. Um, and I think what we're seeing really 
if I'm being honest, is is a realignment in British politics because um, I think, and this is actually something that one of my friends is doing a, an essay on in Peter's politics. I'll do this. I'll say this very quickly, but we're actually seeing amongst working people a surge in support of the Conservative Party, and amongst higher end professionals now more likely to vote Labour. We're actually seeing a complete polarisation, uh, not polar, a complete reorganisation of British politics in the way in which people vote, uh, and I think. I don't think it would be on the same scale as what we saw in America during the 1930s, but, you know, it really could lead to places like my area in London being staunchly Labour, which is a middle class part of London. And we can see places like Hartlepool, places like Bolsover, places like Stoke becoming uh, massive conservative strongholds. It's it's very, very odd to me, very concerning for a lot of working people, I think. And yeah, it's a very odd one. The big news that's been in um, across the UK this week has been the uh, the death of the Duke of Edinburgh, Prince Philip, at the age of 99. Um, and uh, over the last week, we've seen massive outpouring of grief from large sections of the nation uh, regarding Prince Philip. Um, the Queen herself has has paid tribute to her husband, saying that she he was the strength and stay of the uh, of her of her royal life. Um, and not only that, we've also seen massive outpourings of grief from her, from her children and from the wider royal family uh, in general. Um, there's a couple of questions here. I don't want to do much of a report on this because I think the reports have spoken to spoke, spoke themselves in the last week or so. Um, but the, the first question I'd like to ask of both of you is, what do you both think of the extensive news coverage on TV and on radio regarding the death of Prince Philip? Do you think this is something that's quite fit for the modern world or um, do you think this is completely appropriate given how important he was to the royal family of the last near enough century? Um, I personally think there was a bit too much coverage. Um, I'm not like a massive fan of the monarchy, but I don't, you know, I'm not staunchly anti-monarchist, um, but I just think there was just a little too much. Like, um, I think it was at the BBC doing like an eight days worth of mourning or something and I was listening to the radio when the announcement came through and it's just like it was radio one and they just immediately stopped the dance music they were doing and started going into this really serious uh news program um and it just felt it just felt a bit weird and a little dystopian as well it's almost like you know everyone's tv screen is flashing and you get this news from from the big government um which you know it's it's big news but i think um i don't know it was a little too much for me i think people need some kind of way of escaping from that news and I saw a lot of takes on on social media that were like you know if you've got all these old people that are stuck at home and they don't have any you know, no, no way to get outside uh, they've, they've, their television is like that one point of contact with the world and they maybe don't want to be seeing loads of uh, reports on death and sadness and grief if there's only I think it was just channel four at one point that was not playing um uh, you know reels about um about death if that's their only sort of escape from that, that's quite difficult. Um, I think it's fair enough that they were going to cover it, but I just think that the, the amount of time that they spent just solely on Prince Philip was, was quite a lot. I'd maybe expect it for the Queen. Um, obviously, I know Prince Philip was quite a, a big character, but I don't think he was massively, uh, you know, he's not as important as the Queen, let's be real. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, it just for me was a little bit too much. I didn't think they needed that much, basically. Um, yeah, I mean, it touches on um, 
did you, did you guys see the report? It was the BBC received over 100,000 complaints over the Prince Philip coverage. So obviously there is a strong uh, section of society in Britain that feels like it was way overdone. And I do empathise with that point because I think that um, obviously we are, we, are, uh, we are a constitutional monarchy and the monarchy is revered and it's important in this country. So therefore respect needs to be shown in the mourning process. Um, but to that extent, I feel like there could be a specific channel, say on both TV and on radio, uh, one specific radio station and one specific TV, um, TV programme uh, on the BBC could have been dedicated for the set amount of coverage, uh, not only news, but memorials, mourning, like documentaries, whatever they wanted to put on it, dedicated to Prince Philip. And I feel like that is kind of the best of both worlds to handle it, because that, that is this is an important point with um, Prince Philip's passing. It is a bit of an end of an era and it will obviously end when the Queen ends, because obviously end of an era but in the sense that um philip and elizabeth both oversaw kind of this transition to modernity of the monarchy a very important phase and obviously now we that not not that there is a republican sentiment within british society because we don't have any major republican movements but the monarchy is starting to appear a bit out of shape a bit out of date that it's not as necessary anymore and we saw that when we discussed the um the harry and megan interview and um, the allegations that were drawn then about the uh, monarchy being an outmoded form of kind of uh, an outmoded form in british society and um i feel like this is in this transitional period that philip oversaw this is another kind of signifier of that is how do we kind of strike the balance between being a constitutional monarchy and holding on to traditions whilst also looking to the future and recognizing the fact that people don't necessarily revere the monarchy as much as they used to. And um, you can still be respectful while having Republican sense, sentiments, for example. So um, I do think that, yeah, it was a bit overdone when just like, just like Serafina, I was listening to BBC Radio 6 and the coverage came on and that was it and you switch on any other BBC radio station and it was each station was dedicated to it. Um, so it is a bit like, you, it, could have been, it could have been turned down, but at the same time, I do understand um, and appreciate the fact that in, in a time of mourning, respect is, is necessary and uh, it's necessary for people to get together and to heal. So yeah, I, I think that it was overdone and the balance needs to be struck better in the future. Yeah, um, another part that we saw over the last week was um, MPs paying tribute to Prince Philip. Um, there was a debate in Parliament on Monday um, regarding uh, tributes to uh, the late Duke of Edinburgh. Um, and part of that, I don't know if any of you saw that um, those tributes, but I did listen just quickly on to uh, the Prime Minister's tribute. Um, it was very well done, I thought. I think he, he spoke very well. Um, although he did, at times, pay tribute to Prince Philip's um, controversial language that he's used in his life. Um, I was just going to quickly ask, uh, what do you guys think about the controversial comments that Prince Philip has made during his life? Is it something that we should look on in a, a jokey way and a way of remembrance, or should we uh, look on it as a way of, of, of trying to signify a change in the way the monarchy approaches um, civilians? I don't think we should look at it as a jokey way because I think we just need to accept the fact that Prince Philip was definitely of the old guard and he had some very conservative traditionalist opinions because he just 
was from that period of time like he was there he was part of the the armed forces when you know the empire was breaking down around the second world war and stuff like he's been uh, around for a long time he was in the army he's definitely part of that sort of establishment and i it it almost gets at me when people say his comments were controversial because a lot of them weren't controversial they were just racist um (laughs) which you know i i think you just have to accept the fact that he 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 had those views like you can mourn him him and you can be respectful but that doesn't mean you have to suddenly like him um yeah i i kind of agree with um what seraphina said and kind of on the sentiment of you, you kind of provided these two contrasting opinions of how we should react to it i definitely think that um it's difficult and dangerous to apply modern morals and modern moral standards on the past and i don't think we should judge the past that way that's not saying that i'm justifying um, his remarks because i agree with seraphina that they they need to be treated as not oh this is controversial they were racist and i think a way of tackling that and talking about it in the present rather than kind of then just labeling it as racist and that's it i think moving to like an educational aspect in this kind of discourse and discursive in the sense of talking about it of um, addressing what was said acknowledging that it was wrong it was racist but also they're not kind of applying a contemporary moral yardstick to it in that sense, because I always think that it's a slippery slope of judging the past by mo- um, contemporary morals. So I think the best the best way of speaking about such issues is through open discourse and educational kind of discourse as well, in the sense of addressing it and not whitewashing it, saying, revealing it for what it is and discussing it openly. So, yeah, I, I, I side with th- that sentiment as well. I was just kind of clarifying my position on it. Uh, yeah, and lastly, I think Seraphina has already answered this question, so I'll just ask you to Peter. But um, do, do you think that we would have the same um, the same reaction to the Queen uh, when she passes? Obviously, you both mentioned how you felt that um, the news coverage in some parts was quite overwhelming, quite extensive. Um, do you think that that would be, uh, in your eyes? would you still have the same opinion when the queen dies or would you be more um would you be more likely to say okay this is completely acceptable i think that the coverage will obviously be a lot more intense and rightfully so because she is the monarch of this country and she has held such an important position and um so it played such an important part in like i said earlier with what both Elizabeth and Philip playing such an integral part in this transition of Britain from empire and from the legacy of empire to a modern Britain, the Britain that we live in today. So obviously, rightfully so, the, the, the TV channels, radio stations will mourn the Queen and coverage will be extensive. Uh, and like I said, in my personal opinion, I think that all that can be carried out just through specific channels so that there are options for people because some people at the end of the day will be staunch Republicans and they won't want to see that for two weeks on the news and on the radio constantly. And I think kind of like respecting that diversity in British society is part of the contemporary world we find ourselves in. So like I said, striking the balance between, yes, featuring it, and you can feature it just as heavily as you want on specific channels. But like I said, just kind of scaling down the scope of the channels that are used by the BBC. I don't think that will happen. Obviously, it'll be it'll be like two weeks of just pure Queen mania morning. 
Um, I think it is understandable with the Queen, though. If you've got, um, I, I agree that you, we should have it on certain channels so people do have a choice. But I think period that would make a lot more sense for her because she's probably done a lot more for the country. I'm guessing. Um, but yeah, I think I think it just it if that's the extent that they went to for Prince Philip, I'll be very interested to see. Will it be 16 days for the Queen? Like, what will it have ended? I'm assuming we're going to get a bank holiday, which might be make people a bit more sympathetic to the um the amount on the media but yeah i'd be interested to see not that i'm wishing death on the queen but it's inevitable so <laughs> it's worth stating actually that um operation london bridge which is the code name given to the the death of a monarch um does require nine days of national mourning from the date of death up until the funeral so the actual i think the, the actual same it'll be the same sort of time period as what we're seeing at the moment but naturally, as you both mentioned, much, much more intense. Um, and yeah, completely 24 hours news channel, um, probably for those full nine days. So yeah, I think it's a mixture of both. Um, but yeah, that concludes my news report. Um, and I feel like we should probably mention very, very quickly about the recent news that's come in just on today's day of, of, of recording, uh, which is the announcement that universities will return um, on the 17th of May, uh, no earlier, sorry, than the 17th of May. Uh, which has been criticised by education unions, the UCU in particular, who have said that this is basically pointless, seeing as the majority of lectures and seminars will be already complete by this point. In fact, the exam week, I'm pretty sure, starts the week after the 17th of May. Um, so uh, the EUC have been criticising this, and it'd be, they said it'd be much more uh, helpful for students and staff to say um, a return back in September would be more welcome. Um, but a very quick question on this. Do you think that, um, well, I think we've already, or I think we're all in agreement that uh, students as, as a whole have felt that they've been um, completely left behind when it comes to uh, plans regarding uh, reopening and lockdowns, etc. Uh, but my question is, um, when it comes to university halls reopening, should the government have allowed university students to return to halls in a safe and secure way? Um, before the 17th of May? I absolutely think so. I think I've seen a couple of people complaining that like they can go and tell their hairdresser now about their dissertation, but they can't go and talk to their professors about it. And I just think it's a little bit ridiculous. Like, as you said, Luke, our exam period starts on the 19th of May, I'm pretty sure. And so our teaching ends two days before that period of when face-to-face teaching will begin again so for us at the Manchester student for us as uh, Uni of Manchester students I think it's just like it doesn't affect us at all really and um, personally as a humanities student I haven't had a single in-person thing since last March Um, so it does it's like it's not really going to impact me at all Um, I think for the people in halls like they they have been paying for this for this whole time and I think with a lot of the testing that you know our uni definitely has in place it could have been safely done a long time ago and considering that we're paying nine thousand pounds a year for our education and probably will be slightly more able to be more sensible with like following regulations and things compared to schools yeah I, I completely agree with everything you've said there I think students not only by our university in terms of if we're talking about students at the University of Manchester but students in general across the country 
have, uh, like you said, Luke, been left behind by the government in the sense that along each step of the way of the pandemic this past year, there, there has been minimal consideration for students. And when there has been talk of students by government officials, it's normally been to use them as a scapegoat for, oh, they're spreading the infection, they're, they're, ra they're raising infection rates, they shouldn't come home for Christmas. Like that was, that was the big thing the government cared about rather than looking at how can we um, not, not repay students, but give them a, a degree of, of as in a, an element of kind of inclusivity of feeling like they were being considered. It was always very hostile and very little consideration was thought of regarding students. And um, I, I do sympathise uh, with with all students this past year because it has been a tremendously difficult time. Um, yeah, like in terms of dissertations, I never saw my academic advisor for half a year last year, then didn't get to speak to mine this year. Um, so like in, as in in person, which is obviously difficult because the difference that it makes being able to see just even in lectures, being able to speak to your professors and speak about your ideas and with your peers openly at university makes such a difference to online learning. So campuses opening this late is a bit of a slap in the face in the sense that they're opening either just before or just after a lot of unis have concluded teaching and we're going into the exam season. So yeah, it's... Um, it's been it's been a tough year for students and um i do really feel like they've they have been completely omitted by the government in terms of consideration of their welfare and well-being so yeah um absolutely i just have like one final word uh, to basically sum up what you both have said um to not include students in, in any form of exit strategy to this pandemic has been i think the worst part of it um because it's almost like they just treating us like invisible people to be completely honest um, and yeah, Seraphine hit the nail on the head there when she talked about um, the actual what you can do and what you can't do. I read on BBC Today, which said that you actually can go and get a book out from a library and discuss it with someone at a tattoo parlour, but you can't go into a university seminar and discuss that same book with an academic, um, which is an absolute disgrace. Um, and uh, I think it's very, very rightful that, that students are very, very angry at this time. Um, and... I, if, if there needs to be some form of financial compensation to students, um, no matter who they are living in halls or, or in private accommodation like, like myself and I assume both of you. Um, so, yeah, I think overall, um, massive, massive mess up from the government and uh, students are very, very angry. Thank you for that, Luke. And thank you, Serafina, for tuning in today and presenting. Thank you to our listeners. And the shout out goes out to Johnny on uh, the editor of our show. So thank you for that, too. <laughs> That's it for now. You're in focus.